Welcome back to 10 Blocks. This is your host, Brian Anderson. Joining us on today's show is Edward Glazer. Ed is the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics at Harvard. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a longtime City Journal contributing editor. He's the author of a number of books, perhaps most notably the best-selling Triumph of the City, which came out in 2011. Ed can best be described as the godfather of modern urban economics. We're proud to have him write for City Journal and to have him on the podcast today. His most recent piece for us was just released online over the weekend and appears in our new spring 2020 issue. It's entitled Cities and Pandemics Have a Long History. And speaking of that issue, uh, we have just announced the spring 2020 number. It is the first issue we have ever produced remotely and uh, has a cover package, an extensive package, uh, exploring the current crisis. It's called World War Virus. And now for our interview with Ed Glazer. Ed, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Brian. Uh, We're speaking today, obviously, at a perilous time for cities. It's been uh, over a month now since the staff at City Journal and the Manhattan Institute have commuted to our offices. Uh, We've been putting out the website and putting together our latest issue remotely. Uh, The business sector in the city, much of the city is really now uh, like something out of a a ghost uh, story or a post-apocalyptic scenario. Um, it, it seems empty of life at times with the roads empty, cafes shuttered. Uh, you've made your career really extolling the virtues of cities. The subtitle of your book that I mentioned, uh, The Triumph of the City, is How Our Greatest Invention Makes Us Richer, Smarter, Greener, Healthier, and Happier. In this piece, you warn, though, that pandemics could make the downside of density uh, quite severe for the future of cities. So perhaps we can start there. What does it mean, in your view, um, for American cities, you know, hit by this virus? What, what do you what do you think the short term is looking like? And then we can move to some of the long term. Well, in, in the short term, uh, urban life has been effectively shut down. I mean, um, at its heart, cities are the absence of physical space between people. They are density, proximity, closeness. And they are the opposite of social distancing. <laughs> what we are doing right now and keeping significant amounts of space between us, us and other members of our own species is, is we're functionally de-urbanizing um, because we've come to the conclusion that the downsides of density in this particular moment outweigh the upsides. And we should never have been confused about this risk. Right. Cities have been dealing with pandemics for thousands of years of all the demons that come with density. And there, there are many crime, uh, congestion, high housing costs. But of all of them, contagious disease is the most most terrible. And it has been for thousands of years since it laid low the uh, Athens of Pericles and killed Pericles himself. Um, and we have in some sense lived through a blessed century uh, since the the influenza pandemic of 1920, where our cities have been remarkably healthier, when life expectancy has been several years longer in New York City than it's been outside uh, of the U.S. But there was always the risk of, of plague returning. And so at least in the short one, we're experiencing the sort of full brunt of it, where we've returned to a sort of medieval quarantine state where we're all as far away from each other as we possibly can be. 
you, you note in the piece that in the 19th century, American cities spent as much on clean water as the federal government spent on everything else but for the post office and the military. What kind of efforts did it take to make cities healthier places, especially over the last 100 years? So I think of the fight for clean water as being essentially a 120, 130 year battle, starting with the uh, public water system in in Philadelphia, uh, moving then through the Croton Aqueduct in New York in the 1840s, and then covering all of the mid-sized cities as well. And these were incredibly valuable investments in terms of life expectancy, in terms of banishing the plagues like cholera that had stalked uh, our our cities. Um, but they certainly were not cheap, and they required not just engineering, but incentives and institutions. It's not as if the death rates immediately dropped once the Croton Aqueduct was open. For 25 years after the Croton Aqueduct duck began uh, the flow of water, New York continued to suffer from cholera. And it wasn't until you had the Metropolitan Board of Health under Dr. Stephen Smith, who started requiring tenement owners to connect to the water, that you started seeing really meaningful differences in the health of the city. So it really was a a social battle to try and make our cities healthier. And I think in the same way that, that this became a sort of consuming passion for 19th century urbanites, if the pandemic doesn't go away on its own, if this becomes a regular feature of urban life, I suspect that this will become something of a, cons- a consuming passion for 21st century urbanites as well. You, um, you note in the piece as well that uh, this is going to have significant implications for certain sectors of the economy. Perhaps we could expand a little bit on that. You know, New York is a city that really uh, uh, benefits from tourism, from cafe life. Um, what what could the post-pandemic city look like, um, you know, at least uh, um, before we get some kind of vaccine? Yeah, One-fifth of American workers are in leisure and hospitality and retail trade. These are the sectors that are on the front line of this. Um, in some sense, like, you want to think about a, a broad pattern where American workers moved first from farms into factories, and then as factories de-urbanized and replaced workers with machines, they moved increasingly to services because that was the one thing that it wasn't easier for a machine or a robot to replace a human being, right? I mean, you can have a machine that can make you a perfectly good latte, but they can't make you feel good about yourself by smiling at you when they sell it to you. And so the one place where less well-educated Americans have moved and have found some form of an employment uh, security is in these service sectors. And they are exactly the most vulnerable ones. And if we're not going to have a world in which we're comfortable with face-to-face contact, then I really fear for a third of the American labor force that it, that it's going to be very hard to to do things that are not replaced by machines. Um, and I think, again, that just reiterates the, the need for us to uh, figure out something that actually gets us back to a world in which we are comfortable being around other human beings again. Do you think that this crisis is going to finally result in the death of distance or you know, the, a significant increase in in um, remote work in which people can really situate themselves anywhere. And what would be the broader economic implications of that? So there are two versions of this hypothesis, one of which is, well, we always should have been doing remote work. And what we're learning from uh, the pandemic is that re- remote work isn't that bad. Um, uh, 
I don't personally believe that very much, but it is possible. I mean, personally, I'm finding remote work fairly annoying, uh, and I really do miss seeing my friends and colleagues and students in 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 person. But uh, that is one view, and if that view is is true, then we will move towards more remote working, regardless. The other view, which I subscribe to uh, more strongly, is that remote working is a substitute. It's a far from perfect substitute. Um, but if the risk of pandemic continues, then we will sure as heck do more remote working because, in fact, it, it's better than it's better than nothing. Um, if that is the new normal, if there's a there's a new normal that pandemics continue, uh, then indeed this will be a, a deeply problematic thing for our our highly dense cities. Um, that in fact, if face-to-face -face contact and face-to-face -face working becomes less prevalent, then the cities that enable that work and that enable that contact become far less, uh, far less relevant. I mean, uh, in that sense, the the plague is a sort of direct body bow, blow at the the embrace of a highly urban future. Now, I would guess personally, because I don't subscribe to the first view, that. Uh, I'm optimistic that we will invest what we need to to make this pandemic a one-off thing rather than a recurring part of life. Certainly, I, I, I'm not ready at this point in time to accept that this will be the, the new status quo. And if we do bring the pandemics under, under control, my guess is we get back to something like what we had in December 2019. Um, but again, that requires us to actually make the investments we need to that we once made in the 19th century to make our cities healthy again. It's pretty clear that New York City was not particularly well prepared to handle the crisis at the outset. There was a significant shortage of uh, masks and gloves for city health care workers. Um, you know, there, there were obvious problems with the capacity of, of uh, hospitals to accept patients, although they, they have weathered that and uh, dealt with the crisis very effectively over time. I wonder if you could um, suggest what, what your views are on bolstering city defenses going forward. What do we need to do to, uh, to make the next pandemic or a, a further wave of this one uh, less destructive? It's, it's a, a great and an important question. And in some sense, at the same time, we can feel nothing but enormous gratitude and enormous admiration at the frontline medical personnel who are risking their lives on a daily basis to try and care for the for the pandemic sufferers. And at the same time, we can be a little outraged at the, at the failure. And it's not just the city, it's national preparation that uh, we have had we had warnings in H1N1, we had warnings in the SARS uh, epidemic. We've had warnings that in particular, a, in a water droplet borne pandemic was a possibility for many, many years, right? And that's the one, if you think about the ways that pandemics spread, that's the one that was always gonna be uh, the hardest to eradicate. The ones that are carried by animals, you know, like mosquitoes or rats, you get rid of by draining the swamps, by getting the animals out of the urban areas. The waterborne uh, pandemics, you get rid of by making the water supply safe and functional. Um, the sexually transmitted uh, epidemics or pandemics, uh, people addressed with mostly by changing their, their sexual behavior. But the droplets, the droplets are, are much harder. And so this risk was always there. And 
ideally, we would have been taking this sort of tail risk into account for years, if not for decades. We would have had a national stock of ventilators that can be moved to places that are at most risk. We would have had national and certainly city stocks of masks uh, that that are in uh, in place. We would have had regular monitoring at a global level of whenever this stuff uh, breaks out anywhere, and we would engage in, in sensible precautions around banning air travel to affected places uh, at, at a very quick pace. So uh, I hope that this is what moves, uh, goes goes forward with this. And I think if you think about the trillions of dollars uh, that are being destroyed through this, both through the loss of life and the, the incredible economic dislocation, it is not at all crazy to think about spending tens of billions of dollars to avoid the future loss of, of uh, trillions and hundreds of thousands of lives. So I think we really do need to take this future risk seriously, to invest seriously and sensibly, uh, and to make sure that we both stockpiled um, equipment and to, you know, do whatever we need to do to have the most rapid fire vaccine production that you can possibly have. The final question, Ed, uh, concerns uh, that economic disruption. What is your view of the federal response economically to the pandemic so far? Um, I'm not sure if you've looked at, um, you know, that closely, but love to get your thoughts. Sure. So we, we just did a paper where we surveyed, uh, this is joint with Mike Luca and Marian Bertrand and some other authors, where we sur- surveyed small business owners and uh, their response to the, the pandemic. Uh, in New York, about 50% of them said that they were temporarily closed. Um, in terms of restaurants, uh, about... Well, more than two thirds thought they would survive if the pandemic lasts only a month, but that number drops to less than a third if the pandemic lasts for four months and to less than a fifth if the pandemic lasts for six months. So there's a real sense in which America's small business owners are incredibly vulnerable. Um, The median small business owner who has monthly expenses over $10,000 in our sample has less than two weeks of cash on hand. Um, so it's a very bleak situation. Now, the federal government responded in an enormously uh, open-handed way with uh, the Paycheck Protection Program, and that was originally $349 billion of lending. Some degree of the, the loans turn into a gift if you uh, meet certain terms around uh, keeping your workers hired. Those terms were not exactly clear. Um and they got an awful lot of money out the door quickly, so much so that they appear to have tapped out the first $349 billion and they're going for more. Uh, on one level, this seems appropriate. On the other level, the part of me that's been an economist for the last 30 years who's been anxious about governmental waste uh, is a little worried about the scale of this and about the difficulties of directing the money quickly, right? So uh, the banks prioritized, of course, uh, borrowers who had longstanding relationships with them, who they were easy to uh, process. Those were often not the ones that were most vulnerable. Um, and so this sort of bank managed uh, recovery program is one that's never going to be great at getting the mom and pop enterprises, which are often the most vulnerable. But it's hard to know how you could get the money out quickly without doing that. Um, so I think it's been it's been clumsy. Uh, it's certainly been uh, wasteful, but it has been large and it does seem to have, you know, created a, a shot of, of hope and uh, a, a bit of a cushion into the system. And I think when you're looking at dislocation on this scale, you're going to have to accept a little bit of waste in the public response. So I'm not entirely happy with it all, but it's just moving so quickly. 
that I think it's going to be many years before the economics profession has parsed this one apart and decided what they think they thought was was good or or bad on it. Um, I will say just personally, the part of this that I was most enthusiastic about from the beginning was direct aid to Americans earning less than $100,000 a year. It was just direct checks just to make sure that you had. Normally, I'm quite questioning about uh, things like universal basic income because I think really the long-term uh, goal is to make sure that more Americans are working, not less. And if you just give people checks, it has a adverse effect on people's employment probabilities. We thaw, saw this from the negative income experiments in the 1970s. We see it every time we look at, at basic labor supply equations. But right now, during the pandemic, we're not worried about the fact that people may work a little bit less. Uh, and so just giving people checks is the right way to alleviate uh, alleviate suffering. But it's also true that this has the capacity to tear apart the fabric of our economy. And so the the massive lending program may have been appropriate, but I think it's going to take us a while to figure out if it was. Thanks, Ed. Don't forget to check out Ed Glazer's work at City Journal. His latest essay is entitled Cities and Pandemics Have a Long History. You can find it on our website and we'll link to it in the description. It's included in our special feature in our brand new issue. Uh, you can follow City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at CityJournal underscore MI. And always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Ed Glazer, for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.